First Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We'll pick up verse 9 next week. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the great privilege that we have to come before the throne of Almighty God and to ask you for our heart's desire. And God, it's our desire that you would change us, that you would root the sin out of our life, that you would, um, God, that you would protect our family, that you would provide for our, our friends, God, that you would... Uh, spiritually enrich our church. God, we, we ask you for these things we know we should ask and we know are the best things of life. And we pray that you would answer. We pray that you would teach us to pray and instruct us by the power of your Holy Spirit today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are certain passages of Scripture that almost just kind of shake me. They almost kind of grip me to the, to the seriousness of what's going on in life. Uh, There are times where I, probably like you, get a little apathetic. And I like passages like this that just grab a hold of me and say, Jason, man, now is the time. Now is the opportunity. And, and it's a passage about prayer. If you go back in the context a little bit, it's interesting in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, uh, Paul tells Timothy, remember who you are, remember you're a Christian, remember your calling. And he says at the end of verse 18, wage the good warfare. It's interesting to me that many times the Bible describes what we're about right here this morning as warfare. You know, isn't that strange? I mean, there's not explosions going off. There's no bullets whizzing through the air. You know, you guys don't have guns. Well, some of you probably we do, but you know, you're not holding them out here or you're not charging, you know, anyone. And, and, and so it's odd to me that the Bible would describe what we're a part of here as waging the good warfare. Okay. And then after he challenges Timothy to wage the good warfare in verse 19 and 20, he reminds him of these two guys that they both know, evidently Hymenaeus and Alexander, who basically have made a mess of their life. They've fallen away from the Lord. They've fallen into sin and they've made shipwreck of their life. And so the, the, the whole context is kind of gripping Timothy and saying, all right, Timothy, realize the, the thing that we're about. And because you realize the seriousness of our situation, then I urge you to pray. Okay. Pray. That's that, that's 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 the admonition. After he realizes the bigness of what he's a part of, you need to pray. If I could ask our church family for one thing that, that you would do for me, if I could just ask you, if you, if you give me a chance just to say, would you do one thing for me? What I would ask you to do is I would ask you to pray for me and pray for my wife, Emma, and pray for my five kids, Hannah and Addie and Haddon and Avery and Haven. I would ask you to pray for them on a daily basis. If I could ask you for something, that's what I would ask you for, okay? And you know what? I wouldn't feel awkward at all asking you for that. Uh, I would feel awkward asking you for other things, you know? Uh, my van really needs to be cleaned out. We just got back from, from the lake, and man, I tell you what, you know... I, 
I would feel awkward about saying, hey, Ed, would you come over and help me clean out my van? You know, and I'd feel awkward about that because I'd be taking his time. You know, he, it's, you know, it's just not a great job. You know, it'd be hot in there. I mean, I'd feel awkward about imposing upon somebody. I'd feel awkward about asking you for money. I'd feel awkward about asking you for, for work or, or something like that. But I don't feel awkward at all about asking you to pray for me and for my family. You know why I don't feel awkward about that? Because I open up my Bible... In in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, I urge you to pray for all people. And I'm all people, aren't I? And so in asking you to pray for me, I'm asking you to do what the Bible already tells you to do, right? So I don't feel bad about that. I I don't feel awkward about that. I think you ought to ask, you you ought to be that kind of person. You ought to go to your small group and say, would you guys pray for me? Okay. That's not an imposition on anybody. I've heard people say that before. They're like, well, you know, I I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to impose on you. Obeying the Bible is not an imposition on anybody, okay? And so number one, the Bible commands it. Number two, here's what I know, it's good for you, okay? If Ed prays for me and my wife and my family, if he goes before the Lord and spends an extra five minutes in prayer in the morning, that doesn't hurt Ed Evans one bit, okay? That doesn't hurt Carolyn Casey. That doesn't hurt Fred Mark. It doesn't hurt anybody in this room to pray. I mean, there's a, there's a mutual benefit as we come before the Lord. And so, so we understand this morning, it is a great thing to pray for one one another. And man, it's a powerful thing to pray for one another. Charles Spurgeon, I think one of the greatest preachers since the apostle Paul, he was asked one day, what is, what is the secret to, to the power of your ministry? Now, you know, with Spurgeon, you could have said a lot of things. The guy was brilliant, read six big books a week. Okay. Responded to 500 letters a week, preached over 10 times a week. I mean, the guy was just a genius. Okay. You know what he answered that question though? He thought about for a second. He said, the secret to the success of this ministry is that my people pray for me. And I believe that I, I, I believe that was Spurgeon's success was that he had a group of people who had committed to pray for him relentlessly. Friends, it is an incredible thing to pray for one another. And Paul here commands us to pray for all people. He urges us to pray for all people. And I don't think Paul is talking about a generic prayer. You know how we're tempted sometimes just to kind of give these generic prayers? Lord, I pray for everyone. Amen. You're like, man, that was easy. I applied that whole sermon just like that. You know, you, you probably already did it just right there. Now you don't have to listen because you say, well, Lord, I pray for everybody, you know, or, or some of you, you're going to break it down a little further. Lord, I pray for all those in the northern hemisphere. And Lord, I pray for all those in the southern hemisphere. I got it. Every, that's everybody, right? You know, or you may even break it down a little further. Some of you do something like this. Lord, I pray for my family. And Lord, I pray for all my friends. And Lord, I pray for my church. And Lord, I pray for my country. And Lord, I just pray for my world. You're like, well, that's a pretty good job. I did. You know, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about because notice what he says in verse one. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He uses four different words for prayer. Now, why does he do that? Well, he's got something in mind, okay? Supplications is, is a word that means what is lacking, okay? It stems from a need, okay? So in other words, as, as, I, as I know Bonnie's life and as I know, you know, what she's going through, what she's got on her plate, I know she has needs at times. She, she has things going on. She's got busyness. She's got, you know, family stuff. And so when I know of those things for me to, to, to offer supplications for Bonnie would be to me for me to pray for those needs in her life. 
That, that word prayers is simply a generic word that means to draw near to God. It's to, to come near to God on behalf of somebody else. Intercessions is to enter into the struggle of another person pleading to God on their behalf. It's for me to come and say, Lord, I, I, I pray for Michael and I pray for his situation. I pray for those two little girls in his care and I pray for his wife and I pray for his family and I pray for his situation. And Lord, you know, it's me interceding, grabbing someone else in prayer and lifting them up to the Lord. That's what an intercession is. Thanksgiving. Man, you'll notice, and this is just a general rule of of thumb in the Bible. Thanksgiving is a principle of prayer, all types of prayer. In fact, if we go to Philippians chapter 4. We see prayers for anxiety. Anybody, anybody got any of that? Anybody got anxiety in your life? You worry about stuff? You're, you're, you're bent out of shape about stuff? Well, listen to what the Bible says. In verse 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. Same, same word is over in 1 Timothy. Supplication. Same words in 1 Timothy. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, the Bible says whenever you go to God, when you're anxious, whenever you go to God on behalf of others, whenever you go to God on behalf of yourself, whenever you go to God and following the model of the Lord's prayer, you know what you do? You come with a posture of thanksgiving. In other words, thanksgiving ought to be a part of all of your prayers. You know why? Because God is always good, right? God is always glorious. God is always the giver. God has always been gracious. And therefore, every time we go to God, we ought to go with a posture of giving thanks to him. Not demanding, but a posture of thanksgiving, a posture of recognizing his grace and his goodness. But notice verse 1 says that we go on behalf of others with thanksgiving. I mean, it's telling me to pray for all people. And one of the things it tells me is to pray for all people with thanksgiving. And so what I interpret that to mean is that Paul is saying, I ought to pray for my leaders and pray for my friends and for my wife and for my kids, thanking God for them, thanking God for his grace in their life, thanking God for creating them and putting them in the position they're in, in my life, in relationship to me. Folks, that's the kind of prayer that Paul is talking about. And friends, that's not a generic prayer. That is, that is coming to God with supplications, with prayers, with intercessions and with thanksgivings. Now, what exactly does Paul mean in verse one by praying for all people? He says, first of all, let all these things done for all people. Is Paul asking that we pray by name in those categories for seven billion people on the planet? I don't think that's what he's asking. I don't think that because at the birth rate, you, you, you couldn't keep up, all right? I mean, you, you, not, I mean, you're already behind. You're seven billion behind. But by the time you begin to, to pray, I mean, you, there, there's, there's no way. I think what Paul is saying is that we don't intentionally leave out certain persons, okay? As you pray for, here's the way I usually do it. I begin praying for my wife. I know more of my wife's needs than I know of anybody else on, on earth, okay? Because I'm closer to her than anybody else. I know what's going on in her life. I know what she struggles with. I know, I know what she needs. And so I pray for my wife first. I pray for my kids. I know what's going on in their life. I pray for my, my, my church leaders, my, my guys that are right around me. I pray for Brother Andrew and Pastor Chris and, and my staff and, 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 and leaders, small group leaders. I, I pray for the church as a whole. I, pray, I begin to work out like that. And what the Bible's saying is that as we pray for all people, we should not leave anybody out. Now you're saying, well, why would we leave anybody out? Most likely, a couple different reasons. Number one, you're at odds with them. You're in conflict with them. Maybe you just don't like them. You know, maybe, maybe they do things, say things, believe things that, that are in opposition to what you do and say and believe. Notice where Paul goes with this. Verse two, for kings 
and all who are in high positions. Now, why, why would he mention kings and those in high positions? Well, of course, there's, there's the influence they have over our life. You know, I mean, governmental leaders, much more than today, but in Paul's day, man, Nero was Lord. I mean, to most people, whatever he said went. If he wanted to kill you, he just killed you. He burned you at the stake. You know, whatever, whatever bill or law he passed, it was law. But, but even today, our government has, has a great influence over what happens, taxes we pay, uh, financial things that we deal with, uh, monetary things, health care, education, all those things. And there are many times that we don't agree with those, right? So a couple reasons why I think he mentions in verse 2, governmental leaders, rulers. Number one, because they have great influence over our life. And number two, because many times we're at odds with those people. Man, can you imagine if you were living in Paul's day? Can you imagine living under an emperor at this time? Paul's, Paul's in a Roman prison cell. Under an, empire, under an emperor at this time who is burning Christians at the stake to light his driveway to his house. Okay, can you imagine that kind of government? Wow. You can see why someone would leave him out in their prayers, right? You can see why it'd be really difficult to make thanksgiving for that all people, okay? But let, let me tell you, one strategy that I think the church has missed is realizing the power we have to pray. You know, we, we've kind of got caught up in other things that we can do, you know, which are all fine. Some of them are fine. Some of them are not fine. You know, it, it's never okay to mock your leaders. It's never okay to, to slander your leaders. It's never okay to trash talk. It's never okay to, to simply just try to badmouth our leaders. That, that, you know, that was, never, that was never the strategy of great men of the Bible. You know, you look at Jesus and Stephen. Jesus and Stephen died under the persecution of the rulers over them. You know what they died doing? They died doing praying for those leaders. Jesus is the one that told us to pray for our enemies. He told us to pray for those who persecute us. Uh, that was Jesus. Nehemiah, Daniel. Man, you look through your Old Testament, you get all these, these guys who are in exile. They've been taken over by, by, by foreign, foreign leaders and governments. And then they're serving in exile. And, and they're, they're serving and honoring and, and loving and praying for their leaders. And let me tell you, folks, slander and verbal attack are not a very powerful weapon for change. They're just not. It just doesn't do much. Not only does it not do much out there, but it does some bad things in here. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Friends, the most powerful thing we can do to change our families and our friends and our neighbors and our church and our world is to pray. Okay, it's not the only thing, but I believe it's the most powerful thing that we can do. You know what the Bible tells us about the people in our life, especially the leaders? It tells us that God put them there, okay? Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The Bible says what about authority? It says God, God has placed authority over our lives. Uh, he, he instituted it. He, he put it there. Now, I know what some of you are going to say. You're going to say, well, normally that's true. But with this guy, you know, with this governor, with this congressman, with this president, there's no way. God must have fallen asleep on the job because I can't believe that that guy's there because God put him there. 
Well, I always refer to Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. It says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High... Who's the Most High? That's God. The Most High rules the kingdom of men. Who rules the kingdom of men? There's no mistake about that. God rules the kingdom of men, okay? And He gives it to whom He will, and He sets over it the lowliest of men. So if you're kind of wondering... In a time where the person in charge, you can't fathom why they would be there. You got to remember Daniel 4 tells us that God appoints and puts people where he wants them. Now, here's the good news about that. If God put them there, God can take them out of there too, right? I mean, that's the good news. And not only can he take them out, but let me tell you one step better. God can change their hearts. Isn't that, isn't that the most glorious thing? You know, much more than take them out. God, I'd rather you change them. I'd rather you make them born again. I'd rather you take the heart of, of stone out and put in a heart of flesh so that all the world may see your glory. I mean, that, God, that's what I want you to do. I, I want you to change their heart. And friends, what we have to understand is that prayer is the thing that triggers the grace and power and the work of God in any and every situation. You see, there's a limit to what I can do, okay? There's a limit to what I can do. There's a limit to the influence that I can have on people. There's a limit to the influence I can have on my family and on my friends and on my neighbors and on my community. You know, I I can do things like I can use my power of logic and I can, I can try to persuade and I can argue and I can bully and threaten and intimidate and manipulate and illustrate and flatter and bribe and set an example. But at the end of the day, all of that is limited. But you know what God can do? God can change anybody. All right. What was last week's sermon? We saw a ruler, okay? A guy who was in charge, a guy who had authority. And what was he doing with that authority? He was killing Christians. He was stoning them. He was taking them out of their houses and putting putting them in jail and separating children from their parents. That guy's name was Saul of Tarsus. And what did God do with that guy? God made him the greatest missionary the world has ever known. That's a testimony to the power of God. God can change any heart. You know, there's all kinds of stories in the Old Testament that just teach us about the power of God. Nehemiah, uh, the story of Esther, These great stories about God changing a king's heart in the middle of the night and rescuing the people of God. There's a story I read of of Hudson Taylor, and I'm just going to summarize it. I've been reading it, but we're we're almost behind here. So let me just summarize this this story. Um, In in China, Hudson Taylor had set up all these mission stations, and there's this one mission station that is just succeeding beyond all the others. And they can't figure it out because the guys there are no more gifted than the guys anywhere else. And so they can't figure it out until Hudson Taylor goes to America, and he He's raising funds and he's preaching in churches. And after the church, a guy comes up and he knows all kinds of details about this one mission station. And Hudson Taylor says, how do you know so much about that one mission station? And the guy says, well, I've got a missionary friend who's there. And that guy sends me names. Names of people who he's witnessing to, names of people who who have become converts there. And he says, I take those before the Lord every single day and bathe them in prayer. All of a sudden, Taylor figured out, that's why that place is doing so well. That's why that, that place is winning so many souls for Jesus. Because across the world and another continent, there's a guy who realizes the power of prayer. 
Folks, prayer changes hearts. It changes lives. In verse 2, it says that we ought to pray for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying that as we pray for leaders and rulers and those in authority, a couple things happen. We change the environment that we're in, okay, which that's really important. We change the climate that we live in, but we also change the climate inside of here. Remember, there's two types of peace. There's peace outside, and we want to pray for our rulers so that so that God changes their hearts and gives us peace outside. But there's also peace inside of here, right? And you know what? They're both accomplished the same way through prayer. As we pray for our rulers and through those in authority and for our families and our friends and our town, God not only changes the circumstances out there, but he changes them in here as well. Okay, that's what Philippians was telling us. That verse I read you that says, be anxious about nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts, guard your hearts and minds according to Christ Jesus. Folks, this is a great truth in dealing with those whom we may be in opposition with. Man, how much... How much more, if it applies to our leaders, how much more does it apply to your husband or your wife or your child or your parents or your neighbor? How should you handle when, when you're in opposition with someone? Man, the first thing a Christian ought to do is to commit ourselves to pray for that person. Man, I think about Paul. Here he is in a Roman prison cell. His fate is in the hands of the emperor. And who's the emperor? The emperor is a perverted, homosexual, mass murderer. <laughs> How'd you like your fate to be in that guy's hands? Most people think he was, he was just nuts. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, honor that guy and pray for that guy. That's Paul's strategy. What should we pray for? Well, I think we should pray for their needs. I mean, let's go back again. Supplications, intercessions, prayers, thanksgivings. But I specifically think what God is calling us to do here is to pray for their salvation. Now, now why do I think that? Well, look in your Bible. Verse 1 says, make all these prayers for all people. Verse 2, for kings and those in authority. Verse 3, for this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior... Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth? God says it's good to pray for all people. You know why? Because God desires all people to be saved. That's that's God's heart. You, You see, one of the things we have to learn is that effective prayer is praying according to the heart of God. Okay? And what is God most concerned about in the world? Well, let me tell you, God cares about your everyday life. He does. God cares about fair prices. God cares about health care. I think he cares about education. I think he cares about taxes. I think he cares about all that stuff. But, but you know what? That's not on the top of God's list. Can you believe that? It's not on the top. There's something above all of that. And the thing above all of that is that people come to a knowledge of the truth of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's what is at the top of God's heart. And here's what God knows. God knows that that is the most important thing, okay? Because when that thing changes, everything changes. Isn't that right? When that changes, everything else changes. 
You know, I always tell people, you know, I'll hear people say stuff like, you know what, man, I want that guy. I want him to regret everything he's ever done to me. Okay. The only way that's going to happen, think about this. The only way that that person is going to regret every sinful, hurtful thing they've ever done to you is for them to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the only, that's the only way they're ever going to regret everything they've ever done to you. You know, I hear people say, I want them to do what is right. I want them to admit they're wrong. Then pray for their salvation. Folks, the salvation is the most important thing. And that is the most important thing on God's heart. And so when we know God's heart, I mean, here's effective prayer. Effective prayer is me looking at my Bible and me understanding, okay, this is what God cares about most. This is what's on his mind. This is what's in his heart for my kids and my family. And therefore, I'm going to pray in that thing. That's what it's called to pray in Jesus' name. Have you ever heard people say that? I pray, you know, they finish their prayer in Jesus' name. What they're saying is I'm praying through Jesus and I'm praying consistent with Jesus' heart. Well, Jesus' heart is that, is that men be saved. Notice verse 6. Verse 6 talks about Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Okay, for all. You know, here's the truth, okay? Paul tells us pray for all people. You know why? Because he's not leaving anybody out and he doesn't want us to leave anybody out. Okay? Christ suffered and he bled and he was tortured for Muslims and Arabs and Indians and Russians and soccer moms and drug addicts and upper middle class Starbucks drinking businessmen and prostitutes and homeless men and professional athletes and oil field workers and librarians and politicians and Marines and policemen and governors and ambassadors. And we aren't to leave anybody out of that list. You see, what's really dangerous is when we go to God in prayer... We only pray, if we only pray for those people who are A, close to us, and those people who are B, not at odds with us. You see, if you do that, you're breaking the principle of praying for all people. God wants you to push your prayers out, okay? You, you pray for your wife. You pray for your husband. You pray for your kids. You pray for your family. You pray for, and, and, and remember, when I say pray for your family, I'm not saying pray for the family members you like. I'm saying pray for all of them, okay? And when you pray, you need to pray the things consistent with God's heart. You know, some people think if they, if they, if they pray, God, would you just take that person home? That that's consistent with praying for them. That's not consistent with praying for them. God says he, he desires that, that all men be saved. And see, we don't, we don't get a pick. It's not our job to pick. If I'm having a party... And I pay for all the food, and it's at my house, and I send out invitations, and your one job is to deliver that invitation. You, you know what's wrong for you to do? What's wrong for you to do is to look through those invitations and be like, yep, yep, nope, yep, yep, nope. That's not, that's not right, is it? You know why? It's not your party. It's God's party. And so as you think about the people in your life, and again, I, there, there's a whole lot of people we, we don't know, do we? <laughs> you know, I don't know that, that guy selling rice on the corner in, in Jean-Barie, Thailand. I don't know that guy, you know. I, I don't know the guy that has a little bread stop in Paris, France. I mean, I, there's a lot of people in this world I don't know. There's a lot of people I do know, though. I, I, know, I know the gals that work at Subway. And, and I know the gals that work at Carl's Jr. I know all the fast food people. You know, I, I know them. I know you guys. I know my family. I know my president. 
Can I leave him out? See, some of you are going to say yes. I'm not kidding. Some of you are going to say yes. That's wrong. That's wrong. You don't, you don't get a pick. What if, what if it's God's plan to radically transform Barack Obama? If that's God's plan, then we need to be praying for that. We need to have God's heart. This can be hard for some of us. Maybe you're not going to struggle with political leaders. Maybe, maybe you're a person, that's not, that's not a problem for you. You don't care that much about it. So you're, you're not having any trouble praying for our governor and for our military generals and for our, um, our president. But maybe you're somebody who really struggles with that person in your family that's hurt you. Should you pray for them? You should. Let me, let me walk you through Titus chapter 3, 1 through 3, okay? This is sermon number two. We're going to look at this text too. Are you ready? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Verse two, by the way, would be a great verse to memorize. Just even the first phrase of it. Are you ready? To speak evil of no one. Let's memorize that real quick. Ready? To speak evil of no one. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Titus chapter three, verse two, that I am to... Speak evil of no one. That's pretty big, isn't it? Speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Do you hear that? To show perfect courtesy to all people. All people. Okay? Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once... Is that true? We ourselves were once foolish. Is, is Is that accurate? We ourselves were once foolish disobedient. Is that true? We ourselves were once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You know what the Bible's saying? If it were not for the grace of God in your life, you would be that person. The only reason you're not is because God's been good. He's been gracious. And so how dare you not pray for that person? How dare you leave people out of your intercession? Let's skip to the end. Verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, why does Paul command the men to pray? By the way, he's going to have a word for the women next week in verse 9, starting in verse 9. And uh, after that sermon, I will probably be fired and uh, have to find a new job. But God provides. But uh, why, does, why today does he say men? Why men? Well, there, there's a reason for that. And if you're in Man Up this, this summer, you, you know, God's called the men to be what? Spiritual leaders. That's right. He's called the men to be spiritual leaders. He's called the men to provide and to protect, to set the spiritual tone for their families. Okay. He's called us to do that. Now, now, some of you guys are going to say, Pastor, I am ready to protect my family. I'm, I'm not particularly talking about your, your, your ability to shoot your 9mm, which many of you have showed me, and I am fully convinced that you can do that. But I'm talking about, are you, are you protecting your family spiritually? You know, the biggest threat to my family is not an intruder. The biggest threat to my family is sin. The thing gunning after my kids... 
The most dangerous thing is sin. So the Bible's telling me, Jason, Jason, you got to pray. Men, have the men to pray. Have the men to, to pray, to fight against sin. Have the men to pray, to meet urgent needs. Have the men to pray, to reconcile conflicts. Have the men to pray, to find wisdom and direction for the future. Have the men who will lead, have them leading by praying. And notice what he says, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What does it mean to lift holy hands? It, it means to have a holy life, to, to not be stuck in sin. You see, the thing that will mess up your, your prayer life most is, is sin. Sin will hinder your prayers. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you hear that, guys? Being at odds with your spouse will hinder your ability to come before God Almighty and ask for great things. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What a scary thing that God doesn't hear your prayers. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And so it makes sense why in verse 8 it says, I desire then that at every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without Anger or quarreling? Why without anger or quarreling? Well, that's one of the one of the most popular, one of the most common reasons why our prayers get all messed up, isn't it? Is because we're angry, we're at odds, we're hostile, we have broken relationships. And let, let me just give you my personal testimony. If you took the times in my life where I was least, most least effective in prayer. They correspond exactly with the times in my life that I was at odds with someone. Because you know what? It is hard to pray when you have a bitter heart. Here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to stay in sin. Men, I don't want you to stay in sin. You know why? Because I don't want there to be this long period in my life where I'm not effective praying for my five kids. And I'm not effective praying for my wife. And I'm not effective praying for my, my church family. I mean, you know what that's like? It's like taking somebody out of the battle. You know, I mean, just picture, Paul says, wage a good warfare, Timothy. So we got all of our troops up there, right? We, we, got, we got our troops surrounding our church. And what happens? Well, this guy breaks rank and he goes and sits down. Why? Because he's angry. He's, angry. he's in a conflict. So he's no good on the line. And this lady, she gets off the line. She sits down. And another, and another, and another. Pretty soon you got, you got gaping holes in your defenses. So Paul says, man, I want the men to pray. The men got to step up. You got you to take care of your families and your church and your nation. And you got to do that by being able to lift holy hands to the Lord without quarreling. Let's close with verse 5. Verse 5 is a great verse. It says, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad today that you don't, you don't have to go to God through me? Isn't that good? You don't have to go to God through a priest. There, there's only one person between you and God, and that's Jesus Christ. 
The only way for you to get to God is through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has died on the cross and rose from the dead to give you complete access to God the Father. What a shame if we do not come often for all people. Let's pray. God, help us. God, help us to be people of prayer. God, help us to be people who who stand up and take our place at, at the front lines of the war. And God, that we would be people who pray. People who pray for our spouses, our pray, who pray for our children, who pray for our friends, who pray for our, our neighbors and our church and our world. God, help us to be people who pray. In Jesus' name, amen.